This episode is brought to you by the Sacred Band of Thebes. According to historical accounts, the Sacred Band was formed by a Theban general named Gorgidas, which sounds like a great item of Taco Bell, it was actually a pretty imposing general for the city of Thebes, and the band served with regular infantry in battle. They were made up of 150 gay couples, usually older men, with their younger lovers, and their main function was to cripple the enemy by engaging and killing the best men and usually the leaders in battle. So because of their skill at this, they were considered a tactical unit for Thebes against armies like the Spartans. And not only were they an extremely powerful unit in the army, but they went pretty much undefeated during their time of existence. So I guess that just proves the old adage. On something done right, you gotta get a bear to do it. Welcome to Out of History. This means that we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody. Just be ourselves. Be proud to be ourselves. I think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine. to the very first episode of Out of History, a queer history podcast. We can start with a little bit about myself. I am huge history buff and have been my entire life. I have always been a big fan of alternative histories, the kind of stuff that you learn outside of your typical classroom discussions. In particular, Gay and queer history has always been of interest to me because it's not really spoken about a lot, and you really only find out about it when you go searching for it yourself, and it might even have been how you ended up here. So I hope that if that's true, I can help you on your journey, and I hope you'll have fun with me while you're on it. Just a short discussion before we truly get started. If you're looking for a sensationalist podcast that's seeking to expose historical figures in a sort of Perez Hilton type of way, then that's not what this podcast is going to be. What we will be discussing here is simply an exploration of historical figures that have been, for the most part, pretty straight-washed in how they are typically depicted. Even if you're not familiar with that term, straight washing is like whitewashing. Another, I guess, politically correct term. I don't know. Basically, where you ignore any evidence to the contrary and simply present a person as straight, even when you look into their actual mannerisms and relationships and life, you often find the opposite to be true. And the reason for this podcast is not only as a way to satiate the hunger for knowledge shared by fellow history buffs, 
but also to establish the long history that the LGBT plus community actually has. Because when you take the time to look, we really have always, always been there. Throughout ancient Egypt, ancient Persia, Pompeii, anywhere you look, there's pretty much going to be gay people. And hopefully, if you're not convinced of that, I can help convince you. So let's get on with it. So naturally, for the first episode, I would want to start with a personal hero of mine, a truly wonderful woman who more than earned her nickname First Lady of the World, and that would be Eleanor Roosevelt. And I'm going to just kind of give you a little bit of background about her, and hopefully by the time I'm done, you will love her as much as I do. And I love her a lot. So, not going to bore you with her bougie upbringing or anything like that. If you want a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, there's plenty of them out there. We're going to focus on some of her more altruistic actions. So, when the United States entered World War One, this was before... She was the first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt worked with the American affiliate of the Red Cross, staffing the Red Cross canteen, serving food to soldiers departing from Union Station, and helping them balance their books just to kind of keep them going during the war the uh, war effort. She also volunteered at the Naval Hospital, visiting the wounded and coordinating families' appeals for aid. She was also active in the Navy League's Comfort Committee, which was an organization where volunteers would knit sweaters, socks, and uh, just like other warm items for soldiers serving abroad. Then in the 1920s, she worked with the Women's Trade Union League, and here she raised funds to support the goals of WTUL, which were a 48-hour work week, minimum wage, and the abolition of child labor. Scandalous, I know. She was also a member of the Legislative Affairs Committee of the League of Women Voters, right? Civic organization founded to support, you know, all these suffrage rights that women had just recently acquired and also help women take a larger role in public affairs. From these actions, she became a very influential leader in the New York State Democratic Party and helped win support for her husband, FDR, especially among Democratic women. She was also vocal in her support of the African-American Civil Rights Movement. Once FDR was president, she broke with precedent by inviting hundreds of African-American guests to the White House. She was one of the only voices in the White House that insisted that social benefits be equally extended to Americans of all races. After FDR's death in 1945, then-President Harry S. Truman appointed Eleanor a delegate to the United Nations. In 1946, she became the first chairperson of the UN Commission on Human Rights, and this commission established a special universal Declaration of Human Rights Drafting Committee. So now you know why she is an amazing person and truly deserves her spot as an important member of history, but probably wondering why we're talking about her in this podcast. Because as specified before, she was married 
to FDR, but it's not the only person in her life. And that is what we're going to go into. When Eleanor Roosevelt became the first lady, there were a few major changes that she made to the role. One of them was holding a discussion where only women reporters would be allowed to attend because as a whole, women reporters weren't taken as seriously during this time period. This sort of discussion with the first lady gave them insight into the public office that many people not only uh, weren't privy to, but were unaware of prior to Eleanor doing this. And she also started writing her own column, which was called My Day, and it introduced the general public to what the first lady's life was really like and kind of what the duties of the first lady were. Now, these two things were particularly groundbreaking for the time, because this was still the 1930s. Uh, she was encouraged to do these things by her closest friend at the time, friend, perhaps in quotation marks. You can imagine me doing them if you want. Uh, her close friend, uh, Lorena Hickok, who was notorious for being an out lesbian female reporter. Eleanor used to refer to Lorena as Hick, which was a nickname that all of her close, to f close friends used. And the two of them became close um, back when FDR was campaigning for governor of New York. And Hick was assigned to interview the woman who many people believed would be the future first lady of New York. And then during his later presidential run, uh, Lorena petitioned her editors to let her cover during the length of the campaign and during her time as first lady. And while she did not win the bid to become the exclusive reporter to Eleanor, it did little to stymie their growing friendship and one may say affection for each other. Um, during the aforementioned discussions with women reporters, um, it was quite obvious to people there that Eleanor clearly showed favoritism to Lorena, often picking her out of the crowd of other reporters. And Lorena also got some exclusive one-on-one -on -one breakfast interviews with the first lady. And after FDR's election to the presidency, the two of them spent a lot of their free time in New York together while he was in DC. Uh, they often attended concerts and plays together. And Lorena also would make dinner for them in her small New York apartment, which is adorable. And I know, I mean, I know small in New York terms is like really fucking small, so. And during FDR's first presidential term, uh, Hick resigned from the Associated Press and pretty much moved into the White House. Formally, she worked for a man named Harry Hopkins, who was the head of the New Deal relief programs. And you might be familiar with the New Deal as it was kind of a big deal. This was a job that Eleanor personally arranged for her to have. I mean, 
obviously she knew that she would be amazing at it, but it was also an excuse to have her friend Hick right there with her. And while working for the relief program, Lorena reported, some would say brilliantly, from the field about the lives of those affected by the ravages of the Great Depression. So, obviously, these two women were friends. Close friends. They were close friends. That part cannot be disputed. However, we also have thousands of letters that the two of them wrote to each other over the span of about 30 years. Now, the real count of these letters is over 4,000. But Lorena burned a majority of the letters towards the end of her life because she, according to her daughter, felt they were too scandalous for just anyone to read. Most of these letters were 10 to 15 pages long. These were correspondences that were written almost every day. And during the early period of their relationship, Eleanor wrote every single day including the day of FDR's inauguration. If we're to believe Lorena's daughter, then we've lost some of the more salacious ones. But in my mind, they paint an interesting picture of their relationship. What better way for you to understand what I'm talking about than for me to just read them? And uh, you'll have to excuse me because I don't do... Uh, I don't do voices well, so I'll probably just read these in my regular voice. Also, it's weird to like read other people's love letters, especially out loud. But I'm going to do it because I want you to believe me. Okay, so here goes. The first letter I'm going to read is one that Eleanor wrote to Lorena in 1933, which was still fairly early on in their relationship. Hick, darling, oh, how good it was to hear your voice. It was so inadequate to try and tell you what it meant. Jimmy was near, and I couldn't say je t'aime et je t'adore, as I long to do, but always remember I am saying it, and that I go to sleep thinking of you and repeating our little saying. Now, my French is terrible. Um, I took, like, six years of Spanish, and I think I've taken, like of those little Duolingo French classes. So my pronunciation is definitely not good, but I feel like you got the impression anyway, so I'm going to stop apologizing for it. I'm going to go on to the next one. This next one is another one that Eleanor wrote to Lorena, and this one was on March 7th, 1933. Hick, darling, all day I've thought of you. And another birthday, when I will be with you. And yet tonight, you sounded so far away and formal. Oh, I want to put my arms around you. I ache to hold you close. Your ring is a great comfort. I look at it and think she does love me, or I wouldn't be wearing it. And this letter was written to Hick on her 40th birthday, where I believe uh, she, Lorena was stuck in New York on her birthday. And Eleanor couldn't be there because she had to be in D.C. Sad stuff. Um, so this is another one. I'm just going to keep on the Eleanor train. 
Uh, this is Eleanor writing to Lorena, and this one was two days later, on March 9th. So, two days after the birthday letter. My pictures are nearly all up, and I have you in my sitting room, where I can look at you most of my waking hours. I can't kiss you, so I kiss your picture. Good night and good morning. Which is very heterosexual. Straight women do that all the time, especially to their lesbian best friends. So now we'll read a letter from Lorena to Eleanor. This one is in the same year, um, 1933, and this is on December 5th. Only eight more days. 24 hours from now, it will be only seven more. Just a week. I've been trying today to bring back your face, to remember just how you look. Funny how even the dearest face will fade away in time. Most clearly, I remember your eyes with a kind of teasing smile in them, and the feeling of that soft spot just northeast of the corner of your mouth against my lips. I wonder what we'll do when we meet. What we'll say. Well, I'm rather proud of us, aren't you? I think we've done rather well. Obviously, you can tell that Lorena is a writer just from the more florid nature of her writing. Um, we're just going to do a couple more. Obviously, there are compiles of these letters all over the internet if you want to um, look for yourself. Um, I'll be providing some references at the very end should you choose to look more into them because like i said there are over a thousand that we still even have so this one is another one from eleanor to lorena this is a few years later we're gonna jump to 1936 and this is on january 14th dearest darling you were low and i know that in some way i hurt you and i am sorry and i wish i had not but all i can say is i really love you and this letter was written during a time when they were starting to grow apart because Eleanor's position as the first lady was causing her to be rather busy. So they weren't able to spend as much time together. And the letter that I just read the excerpt from was actually written a day after the two of them had had lunch in New York for the first time in a while. This is another one written from Lorena to Eleanor, written December 27th, 1940. Thanks again, you dear, for all the sweet things you think of and do, and I love you more than I love anyone else in the world except Bins, who, by the way, discovered your present to him on the window seat in the library Sunday. And if you're wondering who Brins is, um, and that's Brins, P-R-I-N-Z, not just mispronouncing the word prince, that was Lorena's dog, who Eleanor bought a present for, for Christmas, which is absolutely adorable. And the last one is another one written from Lorena to Eleanor. That is going to be on October 8, 1941, which was uh, during, uh, well, towards the end of FDR's presidency, which isn't saying much since he served for 12 years. Um, in case you didn't know, FDR was the longest serving president and they only instituted the two term limit after his presidency. So he was able to serve from um, 1933 until his death in 1945. 
So not only was Eleanor Roosevelt one of the, well, the best, perhaps, first lady of all time, but she was also the longest serving. So back to the letter. This is 1941. Um, when their correspondence was starting to falter a little bit, they weren't writing to each other as much, but you can still... Um, you can still feel the affection or maybe I can, you can't. I don't know. I'll just shut up and read it and, um, and see. I meant what I said in the wire I sent you today. I grow prouder of you each year. I know no other woman who could learn to do so many things after 50 and to do them so well as you, love. You are so better than you realize, my dear. A happy birthday, dear. And you are still the person I love more than anyone else in the world. So that's, that's beautiful. And like I said, I will provide um, some references at the end of the podcast in case you'd like to look these up for yourself. I always encourage people to do their own research. Please don't ever um, accept anything anyone tells you at face value. Always look into things for yourself. So please feel free to read these on your own as I did. Um, There's so many of them and I've only read a small, small, small percentage of what these two uh, strong, wonderful, beautiful women um, wrote to each other. So despite what I and many historians believe to be the obvious nature of their relationship, or possibly in spite of it, many efforts were made to conceal or hide how close uh, these two women actually were during that time. When you look at pictures during um, the 30s, early 30s, when they were at their closest, you'll notice that uh, Hick was often cropped out of the photos completely, or in the list of names at the bottom, they would just omit her. And this, I mean, most likely, I say probably had a lot to do, but I feel def- I feel like definitely is um, a better word to use here. But it definitely had to do with the fact that Lorena was open about her sexuality. And this was in the 30s and 40s when, I mean, even now, it's still not necessarily a great thing to be open about your sexuality. Um, And, you know, the powers that be were possibly afraid people would talk if they knew how close these two women really were, which says to me that there was probably something to talk about. And it was directly due to this level of censoring and the fact that so many of their letters were destroyed by Lorena that it's nearly impossible to accurately ascertain or determine how long their relationship may have lasted. If there was one, not saying for certain, I think that it was for certain. I'm not alone, but... I don't want to make your mind up for you, so I'll continue to speak in in maybes. So how long the relationship may have lasted, if it existed, or the breadth of it, you know, exactly how close they really were. What we are able to tell is that they were not as close after the mid-40s. That was right around the time where Eleanor's busy schedule got even busier just because of her working with the United Nations as previously stated. But they still remain in correspondence until Eleanor's death in 1962. So there was really not a time 
from the moment they met until Eleanor's death that they weren't um, in contact with each other, which I think is beautiful. And of course, when it comes to anything, especially things relating to gay issues, there is a great deal of controversy over whether or not they did have an actual relationship. And really, since the two of them passed away, and there was never a clear revelation from Eleanor herself, we can only make educated speculations based on the information we still have. And there are plenty of people who look at the evidence, even the letters that I read to you, and don't believe that there is anything there besides a close friendship. And then there are people like myself who definitely see something more. And I believe it's all open to interpretation and it's all open to your own experience. However, while Eleanor and Hicks' relationship is possibly the best evidence that we have that Eleanor Roosevelt was not 100% straight, not a one on the Kinsey scale, not only in it for the dudes, there are a few other uh, bits in the evidence bin, if you will. For one, Hick wasn't the only open-out lesbian that Eleanor was close to at the time. Before her marriage, she lived for years with two out lesbians uh, named Marion Dickerman and Nancy Cook at a cottage they shared in upstate New York, where the sheets and towels were monograms with the three women's initials, E, M, N, just adorable. My wife and I just actually finally got monogram towels, and it's only because my mother-in-law purchased them. And I think monogram towels are wonderful. And uh, not something I would have gotten with any of my roommates that I had before I started dating my wife. Anyways, later in Grange Village, two of her closest friends were another lesbian couple. Um, their names were Esther Lape and Elizabeth Reed. And these weren't just people that she socialized with occasionally when the time called for it or that she only spoke to from time to time. These were women that she brought along with her to inaugurations, visits to British royalty, long vacations. I mean, basically anywhere she wanted the company of close friends. I think there's definitely room to speculate there. So whether or not you believe that she was a little bit more curious than most, I will say the thing you can take away is Eleanor Roosevelt was a woman far ahead of her time period and a believer in social and economic justice when beliefs like that weren't widespread, especially by those in the upper class, of which she was like the upper, upper class. I mean, the Roosevelt name still means something now, but it especially meant something back then. And whether or not she experienced affection for women is something that really only she and her closest friends knew, but it was absolutely something she was comfortable being around. And her letters to Hicks seem to paint a picture of a relationship deeper than friendship. But like I said, I'm not going to make your mind up for you. I am just presenting the information that I have gathered so you can connect whatever dots you want to yourself based on the story I painted of this incredible woman who I admire. And 
If you don't think she's cool enough already, there's also the time that she escaped from a socialite gathering with Amelia Earhart and went on a late night plane flight. But I think that's the type of story for a different type of podcast. Next time on Out of History, we'll be talking about one of the most celebrated actors of his time, or really any time. You have to tune in next time to find out who it is. I'd like for it to be a surprise. Uh, much thanks go out to Roger Streitmatter for transcribing letters for the book Empty Without You, The Intimate Letters of Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok, and Susan Quinn for writing the book Eleanor and Hick. Both of these books can be found on Amazon, and if you've got Amazon Prime, then you can get them in like two days. You can catch up on all the reading that I've done. And also, of course, many thanks go out to Terry Baum and all other lovers of history who keep the subject alive. And don't forget, every day you're creating your own history. So make it a good one. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. That in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want. Or you gotta start somewhere.